I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bible, feel free to follow along. If not, I'm going to read it to us, and you will be fine either way. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll walk through this text together. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, right now you're saying that doesn't sound Christmassy at all. You might even be saying, listen, I came to hear about shepherds and wise men. I think there's a law that you have to do shepherds and wise men on Christmas Eve. Rest assured, we will get to the shepherds and wise men. I promise they're in the wings right there. They're waiting for their cue. It'll take us a little while to get to the shepherds and wise men. The account I just read is most often titled The Temptation of Jesus. And this passage really has been the subject of countless thousands of sermons often very encouraging to our faith in the Lord. And so let me tell you our plan for our brief time together this evening. I want to briefly walk you through the basics of this passage, and then I want to just note some important facts as we go. And after that, I'm going to give you three ways to think through this story. Each one is increasingly more important, and and I'm very convinced that the third one is primary, it's overarching, It is the purpose of the temptation of Jesus. So first, some basics, and then I'll give you three ways to think through this, and I promise we'll get to the shepherds and wise men. Just some basics. Jesus has come from his baptism at which God the Father declared from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That has happened just at the very end of chapter 3. The Spirit of God has brought Jesus to be tempted To be very clear, God doesn't cause the temptation, but there is a purpose statement here to be tempted by the devil. That's the purpose for this episode. This is to give Jesus the opportunity to demonstrate and to prove his righteous character that the declaration made by the Father at his baptism is in fact true. The tempter here is called the devil from the Greek word for accuser at the very end. Jesus calls him Satan, which is the Hebrew word for accuser as well. Satan, or the devil, or the tempter, three different names used here, 
He's a very real being who has interacted with human history going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the temptation of Eve. Jesus has fasted for the past 40 days and nights. He's physically hungry and already we see Jesus connecting significantly to the nation of Israel. And that's the whole point of the Gospel of Matthew. It is, it is a Gospel written first to the Jew. We see the connections here. Moses fasted 40 days and nights. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Elijah fasted 40 days and nights. 1 Kings 19. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The number 40 is very important in the history of Israel. And so Jesus is associating with Moses, the lawgiver, with Elijah, the prophet, and with Israel herself. In the first temptation... Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread to take care of his own hunger. And Satan begins by saying, if you are the Son of God. Satan is tempting Jesus to prove himself by Satan's standards, but the baptism of Jesus has already proven his identity. He need not do that. Now, just to be clear here, it wasn't that Satan was trying to make Jesus doubt his identity as the Son of God, but he was trying to tempt him as the Son of God, to act independently of God as Father, to use His divine sonship, to use His power just to simply satisfy His own hunger. And then in the second temptation, Jesus is taken to the holy city, to Jerusalem, to the pinnacle of the temple. And most scholars are agreed that this is specifically speaking of the southeast corner of the temple complex overlooking the Kidron Valley below. So it doesn't just go down to the ground. It goes down deep to a a long drop, several hundred feet. This is a a drop of certain death unless God intervenes. And again, Satan begins with, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, that God would command angels concerning him and, and save him from harm. But just as Satan did with Eve, he's misusing and mischaracterizing the word of God. The context of Psalm 91 is the stumbling of the psalmist and and God's provision of protection. Not deliberately jumping off a cliff to tempt God, to test God, manufacturing a situation in which you try to manipulate God into doing what you want him to do. And finally, Satan takes Jesus to the top of a high mountain and offers Jesus dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth, the entire world, in exchange for falling down and worshiping Satan. Now, the implication is that this would be immediate, that this would be an immediate consequence, an immediate reward, as it were. Satan has been given by God temporary dominion over the earth. Ephesians 2, verse 2 calls him the, calls him the prince of the power of the air. He was going to make Jesus his second in command. But Jesus rebukes Satan and commands him to go because no one but God is to be worshipped. Jesus has proven his identity in that God cannot sin, therefore he is God. Jesus has proven that he's walking perfectly in the spirit as a man in that he refused to sin. And we said this last time that As fully God, Jesus could not succumb to these temptations. And as fully man, Jesus would not succumb to these temptations. And so the success of Jesus against the temptations of Satan, it really gives great confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. He is who who the Father said he is. His declaration of his sonship and the fact that he is well-pleasing to God the Father, this is all true.
Now, those are the basics about the story. What I'd like to do now is give you three ways to think about this story, and each one is increasingly more important. The first one, I think you're probably most familiar with. The first way to think about this story is that Jesus is the example for us. Jesus is the example for us. This is by far the most popular way to look at this passage. Many different ways to see Jesus as the example for us have been suggested. Many with merit and with helpfulness and and with some, some good usefulness for us. For example, the first temptation to turn stones into bread may represent the temptation to give physical needs priority over spiritual needs. That, you, that this is somebody satisfying a legitimate physical need in an illegitimate way. This is a temptation we're to avoid. The second temptation, to throw himself off the temple, may represent the temptation to be foolish and detest God, trying to make God do your bidding, to be unwise, thinking that God must rescue you all the time, and we're to avoid that as well. The third temptation... To receive dominion over the world, this may represent the temptation of, of receiving power, receiving stuff, receiving things in exchange for worship. Satan has used this tactic with humanity on a regular basis for thousands of years. And the lost, those who don't know Christ, they have spent their lives in search of power and money and fame and influence only to find that they were actually worshiping Satan And the end of their life leads to eternal judgment. All of those are legitimate lessons to be considered and they're useful to us. And maybe even more famously is the comparison that's often made, and rightly so, between the temptation of Eve all the way back in Genesis 3 and in the Garden of Eden and this temptation by Jesus. And there's a third place, 1 John 2.16 lists three temptations also. And to kind of put them all together is a popular way to look at this passage. 1 John 2.16 references the lust of the flesh. Genesis 3.6, Eve was tempted by the fruit which was good for food. She succumbed to that temptation. Jesus was tempted to turn stones to bread. He resisted that temptation by the power of the Spirit. A worthy comparison. 1 John 2.16 also references the lust of the eyes. Eve saw that the fruit was, quote, a delight to the eyes. Jesus was tempted to make a spectacular show of throwing himself from the temple in the view of eyewitnesses, to to put on a glorious show. And 1 John 2.16 references the boastful pride of life or the pride of possessions. Eve took the fruit to have it, the forbidden fruit, which didn't belong to her. It wasn't hers to take. Jesus was tempted to take the kingdoms of the world for himself, simply to have them. And this is a a worthy comparison between Eve, the temptations of 1 John 2.16, and the temptations that Jesus went through, because what they do is they really encompass the scope of of really all of human temptation. There's nothing that is uncovered there. Those parallels are legitimate. They're worth noting because Satan's methods haven't changed over time, and this proves that. Jesus was successful where Adam and Eve failed. He fulfilled his role as the one that the Apostle Paul references as the second Adam. That Jesus would bring life where the first Adam brought death because of sin. And so as Christians, there are tremendous encouragements from the success that Jesus had against Satan. The encouragement that we have the same Holy Spirit as Christians from the, with whom to withstand temptation. The 
the encouragement that the temptations that Jesus faced are greater than any we'll ever face. None of you will ever be offered all the kingdoms of the world. And so you don't have to worry about withstanding that. And you couldn't anyway. So it's a good thing. And there's the encouragement that we ought to use the scriptures as Jesus did to face temptation. Many good lessons. But I would contend that these valid applications are not the primary purpose of this account, to give the Christian moral lessons to live by. The primary point of this passage is not about you. It's about Jesus. He is the focal point. So the first way to think about this text is Jesus is the example for us. Let me move on to a second way that I think gets us closer to looking exclusively at Christ, and that is that Jesus is the representative for Israel. Jesus is the representative for Israel. Now, we've mentioned this in previous messages as we've worked our way through the Gospel of Matthew, but a a larger purpose, a broader lens through which to view the temptation of Jesus is that Jesus is, in essence, acting as the perfect representative, the the go-between, the the, uh, mediator for Israel, He's succeeding where she failed in her covenant obligations to God. And, and just by way of a couple of examples, Jesus has been paralleling in repeat fashion the history of Israel. And this was God's design from the beginning. Isaiah 49, verse 3, God calls the coming Messiah. He calls Jesus, my servant, Israel. That Jesus is to stand in for Israel and to be obedient where Israel failed. And we've seen many examples of this. Israel sojourned in Egypt. So did baby Jesus. God called Israel out of Egypt. So he did with Jesus. On the way to the wilderness, Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus passed through the waters of baptism on his way to be led to the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Now, let me get a little more specific about how Jesus was successful where Israel failed. On Israel's journey toward the promised land, the people were fearful, they were complaining, they were grumbling, they were griping. But they finally came to the time when it was time to take what God had given them and Moses sends 12 spies into Canaan. You remember this? And when they returned, they reported a glorious land, a wonderful place. But 10 of the 12 were fearful. They were fearful of the people living there and so the And so the people as a whole, Israel as a whole, became fearful as well. They distrusted the Lord. And so you recall that God condemned that first generation of Israelites to death, to die wandering the wilderness for 40 years. The first generation had been fearful. They'd been complaining. And like Israel spending 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness You remember that God gave Israel manna in the wilderness after letting them be hungry? Do you remember why he did that though? Moses told the second generation why in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. But still the people complained. What should they have done? What they should have done, even when hungry, they should have believed God. They should have known that God is faithful. And so Jesus does what the people should have done when they sinned against the Lord and they're grumbling, they're complaining. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 
to Satan that it is in God he will trust, not just in the food that God can provide. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The first generation of Israelites tested God at the place called Massa by not believing that God would provide water for them. They grumbled to Moses that God had brought them out of Egypt just to die. And after that generation was all dead, Moses preached to the second generation and he told them in Deuteronomy 6 verse 16, You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Back in that day, Israel should have said, we must not test God. We must believe. So Jesus succeeded where Israel failed and and fought back against Satan with the word of God from Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As early as Mount Sinai, the first generation was tempted to worship other gods. They didn't believe Yahweh was a, a strong enough God to overcome the gods of the Canaanites and and this is speaking from a, an ancient Near East perspective of a generation that grew up thinking that believing in multiple gods was normal. That was their upbringing. Multiple gods in Egypt, that was just what everybody believed. And so Moses reminded the second generation of the sin of their fathers. And he told them in Deuteronomy six thirteen and 14, Yahweh your God you shall fear, and Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. What should the first generation have said? And all the idolatrous generations of Israel subsequent to that, they should have said, Yahweh your God you shall fear. Jesus fought off Satan with the same word of God, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. See, God had given Israel a mission. They had a purpose. They were supposed to be the light of God to a sinful world. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4, God gave them their purpose, that is to be a kingdom of priests, to show God to the nations that surrounded them. But Israel failed. They failed and they failed time and time again. But Jesus would succeed where Israel failed. Jesus is the representative for Israel. Three ways to think about this story. Jesus is the example for us. Jesus is the representative for Israel. But there's a third way to think about this. And and really we're kind of going into a different category altogether now. We're we're elevating to a, a completely different level. It's really on a cosmic scale. And we're surprised to find... What I would see is the primary and most important purpose of the temptation of Jesus. And I can't make it any shorter than this. So I'll repeat it a couple of times. Here's the third way to think about this. And this is the primary and this is the most important reason for the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is the qualified future all-powerful emperor of planet earth. Okay, now it's a different category. Let me repeat it for you. Jesus is the qualified future all-powerful emperor of planet earth. Now, if you don't believe me, give me an opportunity to prove this to you. You've noticed that the temptations seem to increase in scope and in extent. This is by design and that it fits exactly with the primary purpose of the Gospel of Matthew. The purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is to proclaim Jesus Christ as the King who is eminently qualified as the Messiah who has come from God. 
And remember the message of John the Baptist. Remember it's the first message of Jesus. Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. That if the king is coming, this isn't just some invisible, ethereal, spiritual, metaphorical, invisible kingdom. If the king is coming, there's an actual earthly kingdom on its way. The reign of the Son of God on earth is close by. There were three major qualifications that Jesus needed to demonstrate as the true Messiah, the true King, and they're all based in major Old Testament themes. First, he had to be personally righteous. He had to be personally righteous. He had to be upright and and sinless. Even in our own political realm, we, we often have the debate, does character matter? Well, according to God, character matters. He had to be personally righteous. In the first temptation to turn stones to bread, Messiah the man is the focus. The focus is all on him. And Jesus answers not merely as a man defending himself against Satan. He answers as the God-man, Messiah. It's a regal answer. It's a royal answer. Totally loyal to the purposes of God. Loyal to his greater purpose as the Messiah of Israel. His personal hunger is of no consequence. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the situation. He answers royally. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He is Jesus. That is his human name. Christ. Greek for Messiah. And he's shown himself to be personally righteous and upright. But not only must he demonstrate that as Jesus Christ, the God-man, he's righteous and upright. He also, this is the second qualification, he also must demonstrate that he is the son of David. That he's the son of David. Now this is a term that believing Jews called him. It's a reference to one of the most important covenants in the Bible. A covenant that God made with King David a thousand years before the birth of Christ that one of David's descendants would be king over Israel, and not just king over Israel, but king over Israel forever and ever. And so Satan tempted Jesus to throw himself off the temple. Verse 5 is very Israel-centric. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. The holy city, the temple, these are the icons of Israel. Those are the things that say Israel more than anything else. And by the way, there was a very strong tradition passed on by generation after generation of rabbis, well known in Jesus' day, when the one that the rabbis called King Messiah would come. They believed he would make his presence known first by standing on the rooftop of the temple. This was a common expectation. And if Jesus was to leap unharmed from this high place, it would immediately identify him as Messiah. It would likely lead to him being uh, uh, crowned as king almost immediately, word spreading like wildfire. Now, to be very precise, Jesus did identify himself as Messiah. He never denied that. But his mission was not to mobilize Israel in one giant display of spectacular power. Instead, his mission was to present himself as the king and listen to elicit genuine saving faith in him one person at a time. That was his mission. You might even recall that the crowd in John chapter 6 tried to take Jesus 
by force to be king right after he fed 5,000 men and, and their wives and children. He avoided that. He, he escaped that. The temptation was for Jesus to show himself to be the son of David, the true king of Israel, listen, but to do it Satan's way, not his father's way. The first temptation concerning Jesus Christ, the man. The second temptation concerning Jesus Christ, the son of David. The third temptation concerns another major covenant in the Bible, God's covenant with Abraham, concerning Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. In God's covenant with Abraham is recorded in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. God promised Abraham that from his body would come a chosen nation, that is Israel, and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him, that kings would come from him, and specifically, one seed, one man would be the ultimate blessing over all the nations of the world. This is even at this moment being worked out, at least in partial terms, even as we speak, the majority of Christians all throughout church history are Gentiles. They're, they're not Jews. But the ultimate outworking is that this one man, the son of Abraham, by descent, would not only rule Israel, but rule all the nations of the world. And what does Satan tempt Jesus with? To show himself to be the son of Abraham, the true emperor of planet earth, but to do it Satan's way by worshiping Satan. Satan tempted Jesus to be seen as fulfilling himself, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, Satan's way, and fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, Satan's way. It's as if Satan is saying, you can be all of those things. You can be Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, if only you will do as I ask. This is the central core. This is the center of this temptation. Satan's attempt to give a a fake and easy fulfillment. And this must be the primary reason for the temptation because the temptation serves to prove that Jesus is authentic as Jesus Christ. Jesus is authentic as the son of David. And Jesus is authentic as as the son of Abraham. This must be the primary reason. Why? The very purpose statement of Matthew's gospel tells us, reading from Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It all ties together. Jesus proved his personal moral qualification. He proved his national qualification over Israel. And he proved his global qualification over the world. The personal glory Satan offered, temptation number one. The national glory Satan offered, temptation number two. And the global glory that Satan offered, temptation number three. All rightly belong to Jesus. Jesus never denied that. What he denied was Satan's false pathway to receiving the personal, the national, and the global glory that belongs to Jesus. Now you might be saying, this sounds like you're really splitting hairs here. There is a major, major issue at play here. What was Satan trying to do? Why would Satan even be willing to give Jesus power even up to and including every kingdom on earth? Why would Satan do this? Because all three temptations had a condition. They all had a stipulation. Jesus must not go to the cross. 
He must not go to the cross. Jesus must not die to pay the penalty of sin for all who would trust in him. Little known fact, Satan never wanted Jesus to go to the cross. Never. The temptations here were all designed to get Jesus to look out for himself, to think only of himself, and to take those three things now instead of going through the cross. You recall that Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus said he was going to die and be raised again in three days. Jesus told Peter, who was trying to have Jesus avoid the cross, get behind me, who? Satan. Okay, and you say, fine, I get that. But then why did Judas betray Jesus? Why the arrest? Why the torture? Why the humiliation? Well, let me answer that question with another question. Why the Garden of Gethsemane? Why did Jesus pray with such intensity that he cried out to his father in order to have all the strength to go all the way to the cross to drink the cup of suffering that his father had placed before him? Why the Garden of Gethsemane? Because Satan was going to throw everything at Jesus to keep him from the cross. Even Jesus acknowledged that at any time he could have called legions of angels to rescue him. See, Satan wasn't winning by Jesus going all all the way to the cross. Satan was losing. And remember, Christ's death ensured Satan's doom because God will gather kingdom citizens to himself. That kingdom that Satan offered Jesus will belong to Jesus anyway, only it will be a redeemed kingdom of perfected people living with Christ for all eternity. Israel... All the kingdoms of the earth, they rightly belonged to Christ anyway. But the pathway was through the cross. That was the only pathway. Jesus even said, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That he would drink that cup of suffering. Sinners must be saved because of the cross. They must be qualified to enter the kingdom through saving faith in Messiah who died to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. In fact, Philippians 2 gives us this exact pathway that being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, big word, therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth And under the earth, the pathway to universal dominion was a road to a place called Golgotha. To the cross, to death, then to victory over death so that the sins of his future kingdom citizens are paid for and a perfect kingdom can exist for all time, devoid of sin now conquered at the cross, I promised you we would bring in the shepherds and the wise men. Where do they fit in? The shepherds were men of Israel who needed to be qualified to enter the kingdom of Israel. They needed the Davidic covenant. The wise men were men not of Israel who needed to be qualified to enter the worldwide kingdom ruled by Messiah, they needed the Abrahamic covenant. Even at the birth of Christ, he represents all of those that need to come under the lordship of Jesus. What is the qualification to enter that kingdom? There's only one. 
It is the message of John the Baptist. It is the message of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Apostle Paul gave the core truths that you must believe in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, the Christmas story isn't just about the first coming of Jesus. It's a precursor to make us look ahead. Because someday, the King is returning. And He's not coming as a baby. He's not coming. There will be, there will be nothing cute about the coming of Jesus. There will be no lullabies sung when Jesus comes. And all people will come under one of two judgments. To some, the king will say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. But to some, he will say, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And if I could be so bold as to say this, God brought you here tonight to hear that message. He brought you here. I, I love Christmas time. I love the celebration. I love everything about it. I, I, I just love the season. But it is a time of great and deep deception because it is possible to celebrate Christmas every day of your life and miss the whole point of Christ. When Christ returns, there will be no more namby-pamby, cute, Christmassy Jesus presentations. There will be nothing cute He comes with a sword. He comes shedding blood. He comes with armies behind Him. The Apostle Peter even writes to those who say, I can't possibly believe that because nothing like that has ever happened. You know what Peter says? That's exactly what people were saying right before the flood of Noah. Nothing like this has ever happened. God brought you here tonight to hear this message that you must be like the shepherds and you must be like the wise men. You must believe the one who is personally qualified, who is qualified as the son of David, who is qualified as the son of Abraham. Because the point of these temptations is that Jesus is the qualified future, all-powerful emperor of planet Earth. Now you might say the word emperor doesn't sound very biblical. We'll get it straight from the Bible. What is an emperor? An emperor is a king over kings. And the last book of the Bible calls Jesus the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. The shepherds and the wise men bowed down to him, not because he was a cute baby, but because he is the king. And there, is only, there are only two ways to find that out. Believe the word of God to your salvation, or believe it when He comes to your doom. And so my prayer, wouldn't it be glorious to say you came to saving faith on Christmas Eve 2022? That's my prayer. And for those who know Christ, my prayer is that your vision of Christ for Christmas goes farther and farther and farther beyond just the story of Christmas, but always to the cross, always to the resurrection, always to the ascension, always to the current uh, ministry of the mediation that Christ is providing for us, and always to that moment 
recorded in Revelation 19 when the Son of God will get up from the throne of God and He will gird Himself for battle and He will mount up on a white horse and the armies of heaven will follow Him and He will be the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. I don't know, that's a pretty big Christmas for me. I hope it is for you as well. Could we pray together for a moment? Our Father, I believe with all of my heart that you brought all of us together to hear this message tonight, to hear that Jesus is the qualified king. He is the qualified future, all-powerful emperor of planet Earth, the king of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords. And, and while we love and we cherish and we, we adore the, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus condescending to come to this world as a, as a, as a child, He will not return as one. He will return as a mighty warrior that strikes terror in the heart of his enemies and inspires joy in the hearts of his followers. Lord, I pray for every person hearing this that they would be in that latter category of those who follow the King. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.